0: It's the latest episode of everyone's favourite new podcast, the one about the year's most anticipated TV reunion. We learn the origins of a new Disney anti-hero, chat with the stars of an all-Aussie adventure series, and check out a doco that honours an indigenous icon, plus Emily Blunt, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, and the Greek football team. Now that's screen watching.
1: This is not like TV only
0: battle. Television! Teacher! Mother! Secret lover!
2: that's it? That's your movie? Well, I said that I had an idea for
0: a movie. Yes, we're back again. The internet has done all it's can to stop us being here, but we're back. I'm Simon Foster, and joining me, his job's a joke, he's broke, his love life's DOA, he is
1: everyone's Marcel. It's Dan Barrett. Hello, Dan. Uh, Hi, Simon. I mean, that's quite the intro. And look, I hear about all that negativity, but all I know is I'm having one hell of a week.
0: And that's all that really counts, isn't it? As long as we're happy, that's a good thing. Why are you having such a good week?
1: I have the Pfizer vaccine running through my system right now. Oh. I, def- I defeated the bureaucracy. I got a needle in my arm. It's a very exciting week for me. <laughs> but the universe giveth, the universe taketh. I get home yesterday from getting my shot in the arm. Yeah, I walk to bring in my bins because it was bin day yesterday. My garbage bin, stolen.
0: What? What, exactly. the auto? The, 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 which one?
1: The yellow lid or the red lid? A red lid bin.
0: What sort of a world? What has happened to this city?
1: What is going on? Who steals auto bins? Exactly. It's gone to pot. I don't know what's going on. But anyway, Simon, I do know that we've got a heck of a week coming up here.
0: Yes, it's a very crazy time. Lots to review. Lots to talk about. We've got a wonderful interview with uh, a couple of the new stars of an Australian show called Dive Club. Um, plenty to get through. God, just looking down the list. Again, too much to work with, but we'll give it a
1: shot. Look, let's just talk about some of the big uh, things we are reviewing here just for the next like couple of minutes. We're looking at the sequels to A Quiet Place, one of the biggest movies of 2018, I want to say that was. We've got Cruella being the big Emma um, Stone Disney film. We've got a look at the Friends reunion. Like This is a week of big movies and TV shows to talk about. Review time. It stinks. Simon Foss, if you want to kick us off with a look at Cruella, a film I'm very curious about.
0: She thought she owed everyone. It's foolish. Unhinged. Well, you're fired.
2: Why are you speaking? I think you nicked me.
0: But there's something about poetic justice that's just so. Okay, so this is a, I don't know, if it's, a, it's a Disney origin story that I don't know we needed, but let's have a look at it anyway. Um, the prologue features a very pre-teen Estella, as she was originally called, played by the wonderful Tipper Seaford Cleveland, what a name. Um, in this sort of opening sequence, she proves her very individual streak against a whole lot of school bullies, bullies before tragedy ...sees her trajectory adjust to 1970s London during the punk rock movement. She becomes a street urchin and grows into Emma Stone, um, the lovely Cruella of the title. Uh, She's an aspiring fashion designer. She explores an opportunity with a major fashion label, but it's an opportunity that will lead her to becoming the notorious criminal for which she uh, becomes known in later films. Emma Thompson's in there as the Baroness Von Hellman, the head of this prestigious fashion house, and a renowned haute fashion legend um, whose past holds a deep, dark secret that implicates her in Estella slash Cruella's legacy. A um, couple of good uh, support players in Joel Fry and Paul Walter Hauser as uh, the offsiders Jasper and Horace, um, uh, respectively. Okay, so... This is directed by Craig Gillespie, who is a, a dazzling filmmaker. He made I, Tonya a couple of years back with our own Margot Robbie. And he really unleashes his commercial filmmaker vibe in this one. There's swirling cameras, there's plush production design. He uses music. This has got a soundtrack album. Get a load of this. Nina Simone, Supertramp, Queen, Blondie, The Doors, ELO, The Clash. All these amazing songs from the period. All in service of an energetic story that moves forward. 40 minutes into this film, I was thinking I'm really going to love this because it's it's pitched at such a high and entertaining level. But then at about the 90-minute mark, it's still pitched at that high entertaining level but without any really convincing story to take hold of. Obviously, Emma, the two Emmas, Stone and Thompson, um, work well off each other and chew the scenery and go to, to extremes to entertain us. But it's not that interesting an origin story. And all the while, you're certainly remembering that, well, she's a baddie. She's a puppy killer. She, she turns Dalmatians into coats and all that sort of stuff in her later life. So it's an unusual choice to try and make a, a franchise property out of out of Cruella de Vil. I think it was probably inspired a lot by Joaquin Phoenix's Joker um, in turning the bad guy into the central character in the story but while that worked in a dark toxic masculinity sort of way this one's played very cute Um, and you never sort of really forget that what Emma Stone is trying to give heart and soul and goodness to is in fact a a bad person so I think this is a mismatched series of ideas and concepts that is certainly an entertaining if over long film at 130 minutes Um, and I'm interesting to see if this one's going to have legs at the box office
1: yeah, so I've been super curious about this in that I've got no real attachment to the source material and I kind of like Emma Stone. I think the idea of a punk rock way into the story is pretty interesting and this looks fun and really vibrant, but I just get caught in this thing where we saw the Joker and there was definitely a lot of conflicted feelings I think a lot of audience members had watching that because it wasn't so much you're watching the origin story of someone who would go off to become a anarchist murderer Really, it was more some of the mental health issues and just the idea of, like, the misplacement of the Joker as a character who, by the time he would be meeting Batman, would be a senior citizen, effectively, so young mm. Batman would be beating up on an old man. Like, all of that felt kind of weird, but you were able to sort of go with it and sort of put a lot of that aside. But this one here, I can't get past the fact that we're here to celebrate a woman who will go off to start murdering puppies. Like, I really cannot get past that. That is one of the big barriers to me, actually, wanting to sit down and watch this thing.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, um,. An issue that I kept having with the film, and as the film kept trying harder and harder to entertain, I became less and less interested in the story and engaged in what is a terrific performance by Emma Stone. She She's wonderful out front, and she puts her all, and like I say, this is a great looking film, and the constant use of the soundtrack, the music is always under the action, and the action is always being cut to this um, early 70s London beat, which I really enjoyed, but on the downside, it, it, it doesn't go anywhere interesting. The ultimate payoff isn't that convincing. In fact, it's a little bit silly. Um, and uh, like I say, at 134 minutes, this felt like it had one or two um, climaxes, which was one or two too many. So, um, yeah, I, I, it's, I don't know how this is going to play with the public.
1: 134 minutes. My God, that's too much. Yeah. Uh, worth noting... D- I was yeah, I was going to say, worth noting is that that's a film that's in cinemas as of yesterday as we record this. Uh, later today, it makes its way onto the Disney Plus as well. So you can watch that if you're willing to fork out $34.95. Oh,
0: boy, that's a lot of money to sit at home.
1: Okay, let's
0: move on. There's a new series out there. It's called Run the World.
2: Am I in a state? Like right now or generally? I mean, are black women in a state? Well, I'm trying to be in a state of relaxation, and you're killing my butt. Ah! At this
3: point, we've known each other longer than we've not known each other. Another round. Yeah, I'm
2: mean, you need to take that in stages. Back, you hit the birth jackpot when you were born a black woman.
1: Hallelujah. Okay, Simon, get this. There are four women in New York City. They're sexually liberated. They have open and frank conversations about their relationships with one another. And they are fully out there to embrace a whole lot of sex in the city. There's no Miranda's... Haven't I seen this yet? Yeah, exactly. There's no Miranda's, there's no Charlotte's, there's no Mr. Biggs here. This is a show that fully embraces an African-American cast and takes a very big swing at Sex and the City from their perspective. And look, let's be honest, the show really is not doing its own thing. Sure, the characters aren't really a like for like by any means, but the spirit of intent is to do a black Sex and the City, and that's actually more than fine. This isn't a tokenistic race swap either. The racial identity of the women factor into the relationships in the show and even their sexual exploits. Comedically, I'm probably not really quite on the same wavelength as the show, but I'll admit I did laugh out loud when the show has one of the leads talking about having sex with a white man for the first time. She started equating the power dynamic of sex from behind with slavery. Now, saying that out loud, I realized that me, a pasty white guy, really can't get away with talking about that, but these women can, and that's the point. When Sex and the City first aired, its sexual frankness was relatively unique. It was TV airing the sorts of conversations that do occur in real life. It's a sad indictment on screen viewing that, mining similar material from an African-American experiential viewpoint, also feels fresh 23 years later. Now, the show, it's pretty light on star power. The biggest name is probably Amber Stevens West. She's the daughter of US radio DJ Shadow Stevens. Uh, She's a familiar face from roles in shows like Greek, The Carmichael Show, and Happy Together. You might have noticed her as the love interest in 22 Jump Street, but there's a good chance you probably won't know her at all. Now, I'm a big fan of Amber Stevens West. I think she makes for a fantastic straight guy, and that's certainly the role she has here on the show. Two episodes in, the show's still working out on defining who the characters are for the audience exactly, and even then, exactly what is the voice of the show, where yet to really quite know what that is. But if the show does connect with viewers... Expect series co-star Andrea Badeau to break through on this show. She's remarkably funny and remarkably captivating on screen. Run the World is unashamedly a Sex and the City clone, but it's a copycat we've been long overdue to see on TV.
0: That's a big call. I'm happy to have a look at it. Which of the platforms is it on? Did we mention that?
1: Uh, So in the US, it's an epics show, but it shows here in Australia on Stan. Okay, definitely worth checking out.
0: Next up, I'm going to check out a soccer docker. Ooh, I like that. I'm going to... Trademark that. Uh, it's called King Otto. King Otto is an absolute hero in this part of the world. In the summer of 2004, the Greek national football team, which was a side that had never previously won a single match, even scored a goal in any major tournament, took down the giants of world football to become the unlikeliest of European champions The man behind this extraordinary surge in in, in footballing might was a legendary German football coach named Otto Reihagel, the King Otto of the title. After accomplishing every major success in Germany, he made the bold decision to leave all he knew behind and work in a foreign country in a different language with the underachieving Greek national team. Um, And in King Otto, we see behind-the-scenes footage, archive footage, um, some incredible interviews with current stars and stars from the period – Um, about how these two contrasting cultures came together to speak the same football language and absolutely write a new chapter in Greek mythology, certainly in Greek sporting mythology. Um, As a football player, this is something that appealed to me. I remember this extraordinary um, David and Goliath story, how the Greek national team went on to, spoiler alert, it happened 20-odd years ago, but to beat Portugal in in the final of the European Championship with this year's UEFA competition coming up in a few weeks time this is an ideal um ideal time to to get back in touch with some of the great moments in the great sport and this documentary even if you're not a football fan quite frankly is a rousing time at the cinema it's called King Otto in limited release as
1: we speak Simon as big a film as Cruella is the big deal in the cinemas this week is a quiet place part two I don't know why he came all the way up here
0: there's nothing left
3: People out there, people
1: worth saving. About a week or so before watching A Quiet Place Part 2, I set out on a quest to find the first film. I hadn't seen it since it was released in cinemas in 2018, and the film is streaming nowhere. The problem for me going as a Part 2 was that I don't really remember much of Part 1. I vaguely remember that not every family member made it out of the film. Even Vega was the memory of a baby being born into a world where you can't make any noise or else monsters would turn up to rip you apart. And there was a scene with one of the kids that may have been in a grain silo. Maybe? Maybe I'm confusing it with another film entirely. I'm not sure. Maybe it was just an episode of Smallville. I really have no idea. And that's always been the thing with sequels. There's always going to be a majority of viewers who have a passing interest in previous installments, but don't remember some of the finer points of the film. Sure, the majority of people turning up to a new Marvel or Star Wars movie on opening night will have a deep knowledge of the 17 films leading into it. They'll know the catchphrases, the obscure characters, the deep callback to the fact that one guy likes eating Oreos. But for a film to be satisfying, it needs to ensure that the movie can stand on its own and talk to the majority of viewers who do not remember any of that stuff. Now, not remembering part one puts me at a slight disadvantage in reviewing this film. I can tell you that the film very smartly opens with a flashback, to the moment the alien monsters first turn up, and how our hero family quickly learned the rules as to what to do. That's great for two reasons. One, it sets up enough of a reminder of how the world works that any casual viewer, like myself, can catch up very quickly and not be left behind on anything. And two, it gives us more screen time with the endlessly charismatic John Krasinski. Because, spoiler alert for part one, without the flashback, he ain't going to be in this movie. Beyond that is a really taut thriller that, as I think was the case with the first one, has the audience constantly gripped. We tense up when the characters are in peril, we wince when something bad happens, and we cheer when something heroic happens. This is grand traditional blockbuster cinema in all the best ways. Krasinski, who's now directed both of these movies, has proven a second time that he's a natural at this type of filmmaking. One of the great tricks the film pulls off is its transitions between its two young characters, from secondary leads to John Krasinski and Emily Blunt, to becoming the leads of the film themselves. The film is about generational change, and it allows these kids to not only have agency of their own, but also to take care of the situation. By the end of the film, you're eager to see Emily Blunt drift further back as a supporting actor, with the youngsters taking the franchise forward. But here's where I'm actually at a disadvantage. Was that always part of the thematic shape of the storyline, or is that new for this film? I'm not 100% sure how much credit I should be giving this film for that. It works magnificently, but was it more of the same? I don't know, and I actually don't really care that much. What I do know is that I had a fantastic time at the cinema with the film, and I'm absolutely there for the inevitable part three.
0: Love a good monster movie. I haven't had a chance to get out and see this one yet. One thing I am a little bit worried about is that it was so crucial to the success of the first film that the audience remained quiet. Um, a quiet place is has to be the cinema I'm in when I'm watching A Quiet Place. So is this something that uh, is impacted in this film? I th- I even think before the... The, the screenings of the first film, there was a little message from Krasinski saying, hey, look, please, it's really important to the audio landscape or the, the oral landscape of this film um, that everyone stays quiet. Is that, does that factor into it with this movie? Look,
1: I remember very distinctly, this, I remember this more than I actually do remember the experience of watching the movie, but I do remember walking into the cinema and being sort of a bit nervous about the fact that I didn't think there was going to be any sound in the movie and that that was going to be a really unnerving viewing experience. And I do remember a couple of minutes in like that just stopped even being like a concern I had and I just went along for the film. I think with this film, because it starts out in a sequence, which is pre monsters turning up and people are talking and there's very active sound design happening everywhere. It's less of a barrier. Like you're not walking into a place that feels austere, but really you're just watching a standard movie that then starts adapting some of the silence. And the silence to me, it was certainly present in the film, but it didn't feel like it was the main gimmick of the movie. And that's probably to the film's benefit because how much longer can you keep on milking that silence aspect of things? Sure. So it never felt like they were betraying the premise by any means, but it just sort of stopped being the thing they were pushing out to the forefront of the movie.
0: There's been a lot of buzz in the trade papers this week that with Cruella and A Quiet Place Part 2 in cinemas, this is the kickstart of the American summer movie season. Um, Is this a, a blockbuster style of monster movie thriller or can we
1: expect this one to um find most of its
0: audience on the small screen
1: well this is the question that i have so i'm not sure this weekend really is going to be the big release weekend like when we look at the box office i think it's going to look a bit disappointing Uh, like i'd be probably looking more at black widow as the one that's kind of the make or break for the return of cinema is the big screen back we'll find out then but i did have an issue a couple of weeks ago it was mother's day in may and i got my mom some vouchers to go and see a movie So I don't live in the same state as my mom. So like vouchers are a good way to give a gift, you know. So I thought movie vouchers are good. So I bought the vouchers, sent it to her. And then I started looking through the listings for the films coming up over the next couple of months. There really isn't that much that kind of isn't targeted towards, you know, the you and I of the world, Simon, or sort of teenagers. Mm. Like there's not much that my mom would be particularly interested in. But I reckon this film would probably be something that you actually quite get into, but it's definitely one of the few islands in the um, sea of releases over the next few months. So we'll see, like it may start to play well to a audience, which is thoroughly underserved by cinemas, but also there's a audience in the US of that sort of Midwestern audience, which is often overlooked by uh, stories that favor more sort of East Coast uh, mindsets. And so this may actually start to actually get a bit of interest there. So it could be a bit of a dark horse as far as box office is concerned. But if it doesn't perform well, I wouldn't be surprised because 2018, that's a very long time for people to still be enthused about this franchise. A lot's happened since then.
0: I'm going to have a look at a TV series that was released five years ago. Yes, I've always got my finger on the pulse here at uh, screen watching. It's called Brain Dead with Mary Elizabeth Winstead.
1: I hate politics. I hate DC. That's why you'll be so great at it.
0: Have you
3: noticed something weird? What? People are staring at us.
1: We're famous. It's like Hollywood, but with uglier people.
0: Something weird is happening. What? This was a single-season show that uh, had been earmarked for three seasons after I'd done a bit of research, but um, didn't really connect with audiences. Mary Elizabeth Winstead, arguably my favorite Hollywood actress. I have such a crush on her. She stars as Laurel Healy, a documentary filmmaker who takes a job working for her brother, played by Danny Pino, who's a, a U.S. senator. When the funding for her latest documentary film falls through, she's assigned the thankless task of being his new constituency caseworker. But she soon discovers that Washington has been invaded by extraterrestrial insects that are eating the brains and taking control of the population, including members of Congress and their staffers. Now, this is a show that's born out of uh, real life political developments like the government shutdown of the period, which we all remember well. and it works in a very Washington-savvy, satirical angle um, mixed with the kind of crazy sci-fi invasion of the body snatchers-type elements. Um, It absolutely captures, captures the early stages of the country's very bitter bipartisan divide with a really sort of tactful, um, biting sci-fi spin. Uh, It's great to look into the credits. There's episodes directed by cult filmmakers Alan Arkush, who did Rock and Roll High School, and Ron Underwood, who did the great monster movie Tremors. Um, And it's made by, and you're going to help me out here,
1: Dan, uh, two people who went on to bigger successes. Um, What are their names? Uh, Well, they're already big successes by the time this came around. So we're talking about Robert and Michelle King. So they went from the very huge success, The Good Wife, and being given a fair bit of uh, leeway to sort of do whatever they want, and they came out with this very oddball sci-fi comedy satire, which did not succeed. Yeah, No, it didn't succeed. It was bumped around the the schedule
0: as far as I understand, and um, it's certainly something unique and unusual. I I didn't know of it until I stumbled across it on the the Stan streaming platform here in Australia, Um, but it is a... Very witty, um, certainly very bloody at times. There's some um, what are known as CHIs, uh, cranial head injuries or explode, exploding <laughs> head injuries, something like that. And it's quite graphic. Um, it's very funny in parts. Mary Elizabeth Winstead is a terrific foil for all the nuttiness going on in the, in the series. Um, I'm so disappointed with only a couple of episodes to go of season one that it didn't go on to... Um, to to more success. Um, But if you can get a chance to watch brain dead season one, it's on stand.
1: So what is fascinating about this show to me, and it came from Robert and Michelle King and I was a huge good wife fan. And so they were given the freedom to do whatever they wanted. The good wife wrapped up and this launched just a couple of months afterwards. I sat down to watch this and I hated it. It did not work for me at all. But let me just tell you this. So it debuted back in 2016. So it was June, 2016. I watched the first few episodes, I'm like, I do not care for this. I love that Cars song, but outside of that, like, the show itself <laughs> did not work for me. But a couple of, like, just was it six months later, he suddenly had Donald Trump in power. I found myself, I revisited the show probably about a year later. It works so much better as a Trump parody series, and I can't help but feel that you watching it right now, like, I think this show is like a fine wine, or maybe like a gross spoiled wine because I think it probably works even better now in 2021 than it did back when I watched it five years ago, uh, let alone, you know, six years ago when it actually first aired.
0: See, now that's fascinating because to me, this seems like it's absolutely cut from the first year of the Trump's presidency to learn that it actually was written and came out ahead of all the Trump madness um, and that they foresaw this uh, insane sort of media landscape where the MSNBCs and the Fox News were became very divided down party lines, and that the the bipartisan country split um, turned very nasty. Uh, I've just gotten through; I think it's episode four, maybe episode five, and there's talk of uh, arming the you know the, the Republicans arming themselves and and <laughs> storming the White House, and so yeah. it, it's completely sort of prescient to the to what went down. So. Um, it's absolutely worth a revisit and worth, the, worth a, uh, a relaunch as a, as a show that's about as good a political satire and a great science fiction premise as I've seen in a long time.
1: Yeah, it's definitely the emphasis is on the satire more than the sci fi premise of it all. But that's also yeah. the thing with Robin and Michelle King's work. So if you go back and watch The Good Wife, like they were talking about Bitcoin, like maybe about a year or two before it really started becoming a bit of a thing. Uh, like they are like really prescient thinkers about where things are heading and you can see that running through all of their work. So, if you've slept on shows like The Good Wife and Brain Dead and The Good Fight, like go back and give them a look cuz these are shows that are very much sort of five minutes ahead of when they're actually being broadcast. Well worth a look.
0: Brain Dead season 1 on Stan now. Dan. Last night as we record this, uh, The Friends Reunion finally happened on HBO Max in the US and binge here in Australia. Let's have a little bit of a listen. The test is ready. Rachel wrote Ross a letter
1: and demanded he read it before they got back together. How many pages was that letter? 18 pages! 18 pages? Front and back! Front and back is correct! Wait, wait, go one more
0: time! Oh, my God. Here we
1: go. Where's the tissue box? The cost of friends! Could this show be any more fan (laughs) service? There's two paths you can take with a friend's reunion. There's the pathway they took, which is getting all the friends together up on stage, interviewed by a TV presenter. In this case, it was James Corden. And the show does take it one step further than that, and it cuts in segments with all the friends revisiting a recreation of their old set on the old friend's soundstage. There's also footage of them doing script readings from old episodes, and there's clips of people associated with the show doing piece to cameras. Largely, it was a big, huge love fest with tears of joy and laughs and hugs. The special ends with a revelation that Jennifer Aniston and David Schwimmer were into each other when the show first launched, and I'm sure when that moment happened, there were squeals of joy and enthusiasm from the viewers watching on. But there's also the version that critics wanted to see, and if you look around at the critics' response to this, it's very lukewarm. The version the critics wanted to see was for the show to delve deeper into the memories of actually making the show— there's an especially dark moment during the program where Matthew Perry, who has a long time addiction issue, talked about the terror of not hearing audiences laugh at his jokes and how that made him feel. And I know I would have liked to have heard more of him talking about that. But, real talk, this is a fan reunion show. It's for the fans, They're the ones who wanted this, the critics are only along for the ride, they're forced to review it by their editors or their podcast co-hosts. What they want and what would have made for a better 100-minute reunion show is actually irrelevant. This is purely for the fans. Why not give them what they want and what they're there for, regardless of how tried it is? Now, Simon, did you watch this?
0: Yes, I did. I tuned in as soon as it hit the airwaves. I should point out that... In the 90s, I was much more a Seinfelder than a Friends person. Um, I came to Friends in the rerun phase um, and and grew very fond of it. I I didn't give it the credit it was due back in the 90s. And uh, I have since been won over by the simple charms, um, the great chemistry, the great comic timing of the whole cast. For me, it's... Friends comes from a period, and I think this sort of speaks to its longevity as a show, um, it comes from a period where there wasn't a a strong sense of snark out there. Not everything had to have a love it or hate it comment attached. Um, I think for me, and I'm really sort of forming this opinion off the top of my head, but I think for me Friends, the Friends reunion special speaks directly to that. This is there's a there's a sweetness, a lightness of touch, a genuine affection amongst all the cast members and amongst the creators of the show who are interviewed at length in the series. I don't know if I agree that it didn't go particularly deep. There was a lot of casting stories about, you know, the the the, the early
1: days of, the- but those, those are just surface conversations though. They're not really getting to the heart of what it felt for those people who didn't get the job. Like it didn't really go deep than just saying, Oh, well, Louis Mandelaw was supposed to be hired as Joey that, but that didn't really work out. Like they didn't really go much deeper than that,
0: which I think is in line with the series that, the. the, the- the All the depth that came from the series came from just the very simple premise that these people all love each other and are friends. Yes, there's the um you know the twenty twenty vision that says they don't have any black friends they don't have they some of the humor was very much of the time. You couldn't get away with it now that that is all true. Um, but in celebrating what made the show a hit and what made these friends such friends i think the reunion special captured that um, i i don't think it was as cheesy as it could have been um these sort of it, it was always sort of fighting against itself to to be that sort of schlocky nostalgia fest um, that can that i turn off from straight away but i found this to be a, a fairly genuine sort of celebration of not only the show's success but that unique position all these actors found themselves in and find themselves in as genuinely likable people. And that I found that to be heartening.
1: Yeah. I mean, this was the classiest version of the type of special they could have produced. Exactly. Yeah. And I think the very smart move was not opening straight with James Corden introducing them to the stage, but really there was like an opening sequence with them coming and revisiting the old friend sets. And I, I think that definitely added like a bit of emotional heft to the show that would have been missing otherwise. So Smart moves all around. The one thing that's probably also worth noting with this is that this was supposed to come out right before the pandemic hit. Uh, This was going to be a big thing that launched HBO Max over a year ago now. Then the pandemic hits, they weren't able to produce this and it's only now they're able to do it. As a COVID production, it actually doesn't look much like a COVID production. Uh, There is the James Corden sequence where you see people in the audience watching on and they are socially distanced, but they're kind of in the dark and you don't really get much of a glimpse of that really happening. So... By and large, it kind of feels like it could have been shot pre-pandemic and it would be more or less the same program. But the thing that has actually happened is during that pandemic, with the shutdown having happened, a whole bunch of TV reunions took place between then and now. So pretty much every TV show under the sun that has even the smallest of fan bases had all their casts reuniting over Zoom and talking about what had taken place. The thing with all those productions is that... Every single one of those Zoom productions had any money that was raised from the conversation. All of that went to charity. But you've got this Friends special, which is definitely, it's more elaborately produced, and it's something which HBO slash Warner Brothers are making more money out of than those Zoom presentations. But all of the cast, and amongst the opportunity, they all got to be in the room for the first time in uh, 17 years. Mm. In addition to that, they also got paid up to about $3 million each to appear in this special. None of that went to charity like every other reunion we've seen. And I couldn't help but keep on thinking about that while I was watching it. And definitely something felt very uncomfortable watching it. Friends,
0: the reunion is on Binge here in Australia. HBO Max throughout the US and check your own local guides. Dive Club is a new all-Australian, all-girl adventure series. It stars four 16-year-olds Maddie, Lauren, Anna and Stevie, all regular teenagers navigating life and friendship and romance. But under the waters of Cape Mercy, their seaside town, they're skilled divers. Lauren, the group's charismatic trailblazer, goes missing and the besties begin a search filled with all sorts of dangers and adventure. Dive Club launches Saturday on 10 Shake and 10 Play and then in a couple of months it'll be going out around the world via Netflix. I was very lucky to speak with the beautiful and talented co-stars Mia Madden and Georgia Mae Davis earlier this week, who are on the cusp of stardom, thanks to Dive Club. Mia, Georgia Mae, thank you for joining us on screen watching. First of all, tough gig, Port Douglas, Cairns. <laughs> now, did, was it as tough to shoot as it looked, or, or was it the middle of summer <laughs> or winter time?
2: Um, Mia? I, I would say, um, look, the end product is unbelievable for, you know, some of the conditions that we were filming in, right, Nia? Like it was, yeah. you know, 38 degrees, the humidity was at 95%, um, long hours, you know, a short shoot. So, yeah, I'm glad it looks amazing. <laughs> Oh, yeah. and really I feel lovely. like
3: there's worse places to be than Port Douglas like I go to holidays oh, yeah. at Douglas. like it's a beautiful place to be and like on the weekends we would just like go to other resort like all the resorts and swim in the pools like it was it was a pretty good life up there not gonna lie <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. any job was hard but it was good <laughs> <laughs> I, it was amazing
2: to- amazing
0: I want to ask you both about the closeness of the cast. Was was there an instant rapport or was there a a long rehearsal period to get what we see on screen? How were those those early days?
2: I mean, Mia, I think, you know, we bonded quite quickly and I think a lot of us did in the cast purely because we had, it was quite a long audition process in which, you know, it was COVID, so we had a million Zoom meetings and that kind of thing. Um, And then we all went into quarantine, four of us girls, um, prior to the shoot. So we'd all sort of communicated that away. Um, And then when we arrived, it was like instant friends.
3: (laughs) Yeah, no, we all got along really well. um, And we all hang out all the time um, when we got back from Pot Douglas, because obviously, as Georgia May would also know from like, you know, any job that you do, you usually become super tight with people and then you literally never see them again until there's like Mm. a second season or like there's some people I just have not ever seen again and I was like this close with for four months so after this job <laughs> it was probably the first job where they kind of became my best friends in real life which was really nice to see because you never really know especially in Port Douglas like yeah. you wouldn't say you're trapped up there but with COVID you kind of, you <laughs> kind of such a small little town that it's like it's like a little bubble. It doesn't feel like real life. So I was kind of thinking, oh, like we'll probably go back to Sydney and everyone will just sort of go back into their normal lives. But we all just stayed really close. So, yeah, no. what you see on screen is very natural.
0: Now, did in, in the casting of the show, did you use the old actor's trick where they say, can you ride a horse? And straight away you say, of course, I can ride a horse because even if you've never ridden a horse, <laughs> could, could you all dive? Do you all have your diver's license?
2: We do now. Um, we do now. <laughs> I mean, I had been diving a couple of times, like just on holidays and whatnot. Um, So I really loved loved being underwater. But, I mean, scuba diving at depths of 18 metres was a whole (laughs) other level of experience. So we're all qualified now. So any more diving shows, hit us up.
0: As a a licensed diver myself, I was very cautious to watch the... The, the decompressing, the holding the nose and all the little touches that are very often ignored in diving shows. But it seemed very, yeah. it seemed very real.
3: Yeah, for sure. We only had about two cameramen down there and a safety instructor and maybe one or two safety instructors. So it was very like, it didn't feel like you were on set when you were underwater. They just were filming you as you were sort of diving. So it was very like safety was the forefront of
2: the, um, of all of the diving experiences that we had. And even what you were saying about, Simon, about the, you know, the little nuances that real divers would know and pick up on. On land, we really did try to learn those things. So how do you hold your hands correctly and how do you actually put on a mask and the correct language? So we just kind of got that into our bodies. So when we were down there, it, you know, looked like we knew what we were doing more than (laughs) what we did.
0: (laughs) Mia, I want to ask you... um... Your character what, what I guess what really surprised me about the show is that it skews a bit older and I'll be frank with you here that the title dive Club sort of in my mind it conjures the Saddle Club or it conjures the babysitters club. And when I watch it in fact it's it's not that. it's more that sort of late teen drama, that early 20s drama like a Dawson's Creek and, and I found that like really interesting the way it was the way that played out and and Me your character Maddie, She's dealing particularly with the the, the themes of loss. She's an orphan, um, and I mean, you get the close up when they bring in the boat with the, that Maddie was on, and you, you know, you get the teary close up when the Indie comes back in. So you you're sort of carrying a, a lot of the darker themes of this show. How did you feel about exploring that as a character?
3: Um, I think when as an actor you really always want complexities with your character you want to be able to show the audience and you know people watching your sort of capabilities and how you know um the different ranges in which you can act so as soon as i saw that i was going to be able to like tackle all all of those complexities it was it was really enjoyable for me. I thought, okay, this is great. I can push myself. I can challenge myself and sort of put myself through these um experiences as Maddie. And I was really excited to see how that would go because Maddie is sort of like my dream character to play. I always wanted to play like just the kind, friendly, smart one of the group. Like she's not, you know, like she's not malicious in any way. She's not trying to show off. She just like is herself. And that was always like my dream character. So I was more than happy to sort of like Be able to channel Maddie's like sort of um, sort of like struggles in life, and I thought that was really endearing to be able to sort of take on. But yeah, um, I do have to admit when I did see the indie being dragged in. I was like, because we had to do that take so many times, and I was like, okay, I got to like keep the stamina off. I got to keep like the glassy, watery eyes, and I just pictured like Georgia May, like unconscious on the boat coming in, and that just made me ball. I was like, I'm done, <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> Georgia May and I, Georgia was probably the first girl that I really clicked with. We would like sort of spend time together in um, hotel quarantine, walking around the courtyard. Um, so she was probably the first person I clicked with. So it was very. Easy to get emotional. I pictured that Georgia May was actually lost at sea, (laughs) so yeah, I usually have to give myself some sad scenarios in my head to pull it out, and some things are just so sad. But yeah, imagining Georgia May lost at sea was was it for me.
0: (laughs) Georgia May, I want to ask you. I mean, I'm they they provided us with three episodes to to watch, and after the three episodes, I guess you're slightly different from the other four characters in that. You've got Mm. to portray this sort of shining light at the centre of their worlds and and everything about you was all smiley and happy and and about this past life. Totally. But but I I imagine it's going to go darker.
2: Yeah, look, it's definitely going to get much darker. Um, Essentially, my character sort of knows the secrets or all of the bad things or the sort of stuff that's been going on in the town that, you know, isn't right. And this is why she's gotten herself into this situation. So it's so strange to see all these happy, quick moments because a lot of the scenes I did, I was, you know, covered in dirt and heavily bruised and, you know, raggedy clothes, which you will see throughout the show. Um, and a lot of my scenes were quite, high stress and a lot of crying and very, you know, emotionally triggering stuff. So yeah, I'm excited to see the rest of it actually. <laughs> Cause like oh, you said, only those smiley moments so far.
0: Yeah. And, it, and I want to come back to the point I was making about it being skewing a bit older. You've got a character who's, yes. who's done some jail time and, and, you know, Maddie's an orphan as well. There's this darker dramatic element do these scripts come along very often? Is this something that was a very competitive sort of casting period because of the quality of the production?
2: I mean, Mia, I'm not sure for you just with the start of the casting, but I would say it was definitely an, a role I had to fight for in a sense that, you know, it was quite a long process. Um, it was over COVID, so I kept getting pushed back. You never really knew if you had gotten it. Um, So for me, it wasn't until I was really on the plane that I sort of was like, wow, I, you know, this is going to be an amazing opportunity. And to get a script that I just couldn't put down is so rare. Um, So I think that's why I was really excited by this production. Yeah, there's nothing really
3: like (laughs) that. Like you don't see any like far north Queensland, tropical Australian teen mystery with scuba divers. Like that's just like the most... Random combination, but it works so well. Um, but yeah, it was a really hard process um, auditioning just because of COVID, um, things getting pushed back, but also like there was so much competition for all of the roles because essentially I think we all auditioned for Lauren and Izzy just to like see, yeah. just to, like see who could do what, and just to like have the characters out there, and then everybody sort of got filtered into their position. I remember at one point I was actually in the Gold Coast filming another series. And I was like, you know what? I'm just gonna go get a train to Brisbane and meet the producers and just like, try to convince them that Uh I should be And That's exactly what I did. And then I walked out feeling pretty good about it. And then next minute we're all in quarantine, waiting to go (laughs) inside. So I was like, well, at least that worked.
0: (laughs) Can you give us any inside information about a series two? I know it's um, going to the channel 10, the, the network 10 channels, um, and then it's on to Netflix. Um, my fingers are crossed that it, that it heads into a second series. Yeah. Inside tech.
2: Well, look, we probably know as much as you, but from what we've seen and heard from the producers and, you know, just the network itself, it's been really positive. Um, the screening we did, you know, the target audience was there and we got some great reviews from that. So I think season two has already sort of started to be written Um whether that gets picked up or not is another story. But all fingers and even the end of the story in general leads to needing a second series. It ends on a massive cliffhanger.
0: Awesome. That's good to hear. Me, you are ready for another shoot? Ready for another few weeks up north?
3: I would be so keen. I mean, right now in Sydney, it is freezing. So all I can think about is laying by the pool. <laughs> <laughs> I love working as well, but, like, the location was great. Um, but, no, I... It sounds I th- so easy, me up. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't that easy it was just it was the downtime was good um but no i think that fans once they see the season it would be unfair to not give them a season two i
0: <laughs> wouldn't agree more. so true me and madden and georgia may davis thank you so much for being on screen watching all the very best with the launch of the series i can't wait to see uh, the remaining episodes and um fingers crossed uh, you'll be back in the summer soon <laughs> awesome. thanks thank simon you. nice to talk to you thanks guys bye-bye yeah.
1: simon earlier on in the podcast we were talking about the friends revival series and i don't know about you but when i think about 90s tv i don't tend to think about sitcoms that much i tend to think when i think 90s i think er i think law and order i think x files is definitely in there. millennium homicide life on the street uh chicago Hope. sorry what was that one nypd blue yep absolutely murder one is something i think about a yep. fair bit um,
0: like, yeah, the hour owl, the hour long drama, the hour long network show definitely came back in force. Although
1: some of the biggest um, shows of the period were sitcoms, i.e., Seinfeld. Look, absolutely. So the couple of sitcoms that do come to mind is Seinfeld, Mad About You, Friends, mm. Frasier. Mm. Like those are all very much fronts of mind when I think about the nineties as well. But the thing with nineties television is that that entire time period had a revol- like I'd say almost like a renaissance of the sitcom. And a lot of that really came from, there was an interesting shift that happened in the early to mid-90s, which was the biggest sitcom as they entered the 90s was Cheers. And that show was absolutely a monster of a show. Seinfeld ended up airing. And when we think about the types of TV shows we get, what we often don't really think about as we look back in time is how scheduling impacted the way that uh, TV, the types of TV shows we watched were commissioned. So if you think about the fact that Cheers was the biggest show on the air, it's no surprise that when you look at the early 90s, the shows that were sort of leading into Cheers are also the biggest sitcoms of the time, and they're shows that feel a lot like Cheers. So you've got Seinfeld, which was paired up against uh, Cheers, um, and they've kind of got like a similar sort of intellectual uh, sort of comedy sort of basis to it. A lot of very smart, snappy dialogue. Wings was around Mad About You. These are shows that all feel very comfortable when placed up against Cheers. But when Cheers went off the air, you had Seinfeld and they needed to commission other shows that kind of felt a bit more like Seinfeld. So Friends is one of the sitcoms that got commissioned because Friends and Seinfeld, you can see the various obvious links there. But then a year after Friends, well, as Friends launched, that show became a juggernaut. So the rest of NBC's Thursday night lineup become shows that look and felt just like Friends. And so as other networks looked around at what was working, they looked at Friends and these other sitcoms that felt like Friends. And so more of these sitcoms sort of came along. So urban, sophisticated, um, young 20-something sitcom begat urban, sophisticated, young 20-something sitcom. And so a lot of the 90s is just dominated by all these shows that look and feel a lot like Friends in one regard or another. So what I thought we'd talk about, Simon, we'd look at some of these sitcoms that also ran Friends Wannabes.
0: Okay. So I remember some with... Affection, uh, some launch some big careers is one I'm specifically thinking of. I want to hear your what are we going to go your your big five.
1: What was the show that you think launched the career?
0: I can think of Ryan Reynolds in the Two Guys, a Girl, and a Pizza Place. Yep is is
1: one that that that, that was that what was called something like that? Yep, that springs to mind. Which is absolutely a Friends wannabe. I focus on the ones that you probably aren't going to remember so much. So when you think about okay. Friends wannabes, you're probably also thinking about like say maybe like a Carolyn in the City. You're thinking about yes. Veronica's Closet. Uh, There were a whole bunch of these shows which were kind of of that mold of the time. But the ones I want to talk about are the more obscure ones. So these, I think, are maybe the five best Friends wannabes that came from that time period. And I'm Mm -hmm. referring to them as Friends wannabes, but they're also shows that were kind of Seinfeld wannabes to a certain extent. So it was kind of just filling that very similar texture.
0: Yep, that East Coast vibe, that East Coast voice. uh, Very cool people um, living lives that they couldn't really afford, but, uh,
1: look good doing it. Look, absolutely. You've nailed it entirely. Okay. So the first one, which is the most obvious ripoff of the lot of them is the single guy.
0: I got it, John.
3: You make a reservation at her favorite restaurant and you go a day early and case out the
0: menu. Yes. Then I could order the cheapest thing without looking at the menu. And thus it'll appear as if I'm not intentionally ordering the cheapest thing. That is good, Sammy. Very good.
3: You want cheap? You found the king of cheap.
1: you don't remember the single guy this is a struggling new york writer played by the great jonathan silverman who you'd remember from everyone's favorite art house movies weekend at bernie's and weekend Burnies. at bernie's 2 uh, it's about him attempting to find success and dating in the big apple this was a show that was created by brad hall formerly of snl and these days probably better known as the husband of julie louis dreyfus i really like this one because the cast of the show i thought was fantastic even if the show didn't really quite live up to it entirely so it's got a supporting cast and. You may not recognize these names immediately, but Google them and you'll absolutely know who these people are by face. Uh, Joey Slotnick, uh, Ming-Na Wen, who later went on to be an ER and was recently in The Mandalorian, Ernest Borgnine, I think everyone knows Ernest, Uh, Jessica Hecht, who was also in the first season of Friends as uh, David Schwimmer's, the Ross character's um, ex-wife, who was getting married to another woman. Um, You definitely know her. And also Mark Moses, who's better known nowadays for being in Mad Men and Mr. Robot, The single guy, it's probably most uh, remembered episode is one where the Ross character from Friends ends up appearing in the show because apparently him and the Jonathan Silverman character had gone to college together, I think. But anyway, it was kind of strange considering that they both live in the same city and these two supposed good friends only met up in this one episode. Uh, But anyway, the single guy, you can find clips of it still on YouTube. The one that's really front of mind for me is this sitcom called Can't Hurry Love. Don't remember it.
0: That's right, i having lunch with my wife, the woman who took my name, or at least typhonated it. <laughs> you know, I, I've never seen a man so thrilled to be having lunch with his own wife. Someone else's maybe, but not his own.
2: because <laughs> they're not lucky
0: enough to be dining with a junior public defender who's been so busy junior defending lately that I never see her. But today she's been tried and convicted as a prisoner of my love. <laughs>
1: Okay, so this one here, this is very friends-like. This is four friends living in an occasional peaceful coexistence in New York City. You've got love-seeking Annie O'Donnell. You've got womanizing Roger Colucci and married Elliot Tanny, who worked together in a Manhattan personal agency trying to get by any way they can. And then you've also got Dee Dee Edelstone, who's a sexy divorcee, who's attempting to give Annie and the others advice any way she can in the do's and don'ts of dating. What is notable about this show is not only does it look and feel a lot like Friends, but the cast on it, you got Mariska Hargitay playing the aforementioned yeah. Dede Edelston, who's since gone on to very big things with the Law & Order SVU. But we were talking earlier about Friends and the casting what-ifs. The two main cast members in this is Louis Mandalore, who was up for the role of Joey. Uh, people may also remember his brother Costas Mandalore, who was in Picket Fences at the same time. So you've got him in the show, but also Nancy McKeon, who was formerly of, I want to say it was the Facts of Life, but was up for the role of Monica in the show, and she was pretty much a lock to get the role until they decided on Courtney Cox.
0: Wow, yeah. that is a great cast. So in the wake of Friends, they grabbed all the <laughs> friends <laughs> near misses and, and cast them in their own show. Look, absolutely. Did this, have, did, did this have any run? How many? How many episodes did this run for? I want to
1: say it's a single-season run, in fact, I think all 19 the sh- episodes Yep Single season run You can actually find Every episode of this Currently streaming on YouTube So if you want to give it a look wow. It's definitely out there
0: I found this internet database about movies on the website, on a oh, really? on the web, and it, it, <laughs> it's got 19 episodes. That is very cute. I'm going to have to check that out. Can't Hurry Love. Mondays, 8.30, 7.30 Central. That's interesting. What's your next one? I'm in the
1: zone now. What's, okay. What's next? The next one is this, and we will talk about these shows being very urban-based. This is actually a bit of a departure. It's a show called Townies. Oh,
0: yeah. I remember Townies for sure.
1: Oh, you remember Townies. Okay. This aired on Channel 7 for a little while. <laughs>
3: Good morning, sunshine. What are you guys doing here? Price meds fitting? Does that ring a bell? Oh, I don't want to try on crunchy fabrics today.
0: Where'd you end up last night? I don't remember. Who's the naked guy in the bathroom?
3: Starting to come back to me? You're such a slut. I'm not a slut. I'm just a quick judge of character. So cute?
0: I don't know he was naked.
3: But you can't tell if a guy's cute if he's naked?
0: No, I can't. And Don't try to make it into some kind of homophobic thing, all right? I don't like to look at a naked guy. I don't like to look at myself naked.
3: Well, that I understand.
1: (laughs) Uh, This is three friends who've been stuck in an East Coast fishing community forever, and no matter how badly they want to leave for the big city, something's always tying them down. Now, this show, the writing on it was kind of okay. It was a pretty generic sitcom in a lot of regards. It had an interesting premise in that it felt different to all the big city-based shows at the time, even though the mindset of the characters was not that dissimilar. But listen to this cast, Simon. Like, this is kind of incredible.
0: Mm, oh, I know the cast. And, and it'll, to, a, to a Gen Xer like me, you'll see why I know this
1: cast. Look, absolutely. So the thing that caught your attention was Molly Ringwald. Oh, yes. This was really like a big draw card to get Molly Ringwald in a TV series. Mm. So the show had that, but new faces in it included people like Jenna Elfman. She later went on to become the Dharma of Dharma and Greg. You've got Lauren Graham, who later went on to The Gilmore Girls. But this is during this time period of the 90s where Lauren Graham was in every TV sitcom that was on the air at the time. Like she was destined to become a star. And like this is definitely one of the trots that she had right before stardom. Uh, the male leads on it was Ron Livingston, who I absolutely adore, and also Bill Burr, who's recently become a huge deal from the stand-up comedy scene.
0: Extraordinary. Look at this. Look at this. And, and, and it barely got to 15 episodes. One, a certain an absolute single season, no-hoper, with that cast.
1: Yeah, and you say 15 episodes, I'm thinking off the top of my head that not all of them actually end up being broadcast. There's probably like three <laughs> to five that actually are just sitting in a vault somewhere.
0: Oh, poor Molly.
1: That said, I think we got them all broadcast here in Australia during the short run that Channel 7 were playing out. Uh, moving on, getting back to the East Coast, because that's where these shows exist. Ned and Stacey.
0: Ah, uh, Yes. <laughs> Hi Stacy, it was business. Strictly business. Here's the deal. To get the promotion, I needed the one.
3: See, to get a life, I needed his apartment. So
1: what the hell? We up and got married.
3: The only thing
0: we have in common, we irritate each other.
1: Right. Enjoy the show. People will probably remember Ned and Stacy. I think it was quite popular here in Australia, even if it wasn't necessarily that popular in the US. They got to a second season. Ned and Stacy one, you've got Ned, who's an ad executive. You've got Stacy, who's an unemployed, idealistic person. The two of them are like oil and vinegar, oil and water. I don't know what the metaphor is. But anyway, Ned needs a promotion. And to get that, he needs a wife. So he ends up hiring Stacy to be his fake live-in wife. And it's about the two of them seeking love in a big city while also in this... Fake relationship, which turns into a real relationship because you know that just quietly the two of them really do have the hots for one another. Uh, This had Thomas Haddon Church, who people probably best remember these days from Sideways, and Deborah Messing, who went on to much bigger sitcom stardom with uh, Will and Grace. Also in this was Greg Gurman, who is the, I can't think of his character's name. I want to say it's maybe Finch, but I don't think that's right. Uh, He was one of the guys in Ally McBeal and is a very well-remembered face for that. Now, the final one I want to talk about, Simon, is partners.
2: That means go over and talk to her.
1: Oh, no, they say. I don't know. uh, Oh, come on. Come
2: on. Come on. Compliment her on her jewelry. Come on. Go, go. 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 (laughs) Go.
1: Hi. Hi. Uh, I'm I'm Bob. Uh, I'm Owen's friend. Well, partner. I'm
3: Charlotte. I, I went to Berkeley with Alicia.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. Those are uh, those are very nice earrings.
3: Oh, thank you. Yeah. Hey, when this is all over, do you want to come back to my hotel room with me and
0: have sex? <laughs> 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 <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> Anybody seen a better day? When the sun shines, work is play. Sometimes the world spins around us but we stay together.
0: On a No idea. What is Partners?
1: Okay, so Partners. The name Partners has been reused for sitcoms at least two or three times since then. It seems like every two to three years, there'll be a new sitcom on the air called Partners. (laughs) Uh, This has best friends Bob and Owen working together as aspiring young architects on the rise. Their relationship's complicated, however, when Owen gets engaged to Alicia. Now, this show, it was definitely one of the very generic Friends wannabes. I had Molly Ringwald co-star from years gone by, John Cryer in one of the lead roles, but also, interestingly, I had Tate Donovan as the other male lead in this, uh, playing the Owen character who's engaged to Alicia. Now, Tate Donovan at the time was well-known from the women's magazines for being the boyfriend of one Jennifer Aniston. Yes. So in the same way that Can't Harry Love just picked up the friend's uh, offshoots, uh, this one went, whoa, he's dating Jennifer Aniston. Let's give him a show. And here we are. That is really interesting. It also stars a young actress
0: called Maria Patillo, who was everywhere for about five minutes in the mid-90s. She starred in this. She was the squeaky-voiced friend in the Godzilla movie with Matthew Broderick. I remember her very fondly. I really can't see her doing any work um, since the turn of the millennium. Boy, her... Star shone bright and very quickly, so okay partners check yeah, where can we see this oh
1: <laughs> there's a question I've no idea
0: <laughs>
1: zero idea this is
0: so sad there's this wealth of of sitcom um uh, uh, ephemera this this sort of this sitcom uh, bygone era that we're just not seeing on any of the Netflix's or any of the streaming platforms. Guys, do your job. Get it out there. Who wouldn't want to watch 22 quick episodes of Partners with a very skinny John Cryer, if IMDb is telling the truth, and a very young Tate Donovan
1: as well. So, okay, there's
0: plenty of homework for us to do,
1: Dan Barrett. Yeah, look, you're absolutely right, aren't on streaming services. Often, a lot of these shows, though... So let's talk about Carol in the City, which I mentioned a little while ago. You can mm-hmm. find that streaming on the Paramount Plus service, and... I don't know if it would be on Australia's Paramount Plus, but it probably will be because I think it's all fully licensed by CBS, so they're good to go with it. When you watch these shows, they absolutely work in the time, but I have to say like sitcoms age dramatically badly as time goes on, and it's a very rare sitcom that still has any cultural resonance afterwards. The fact that Friends still works quite well, the fact that Seinfeld still works... The fact you can go back and watch a Cheers or a Frasier or um, even like a Family Ties, like it really speaks of the quality of these shows, that they're able to actually stretch beyond their cultural uh, touchstone of the moment and still resonate generations later. Sitcoms are not made to be watched later, and most TV generally isn't either. The way we watch TV is quite diff- different now to the way that we used to watch TV, and TV is produced for entirely different reasons. So... Maybe these shows are better resigns to the dustbin of history. I'd kind of like to see them, though, if only for curiosity's sake. Australian version
0: of Friends
1: Altogether Now? I don't know about that. I'd say that Altogether Now is maybe more of an Australian version of um, Who's the Boss?
0: Yes, yeah, good call. Do we have an Australian version of Friends? Was there a, and I'm putting you on the spot here, testing your knowledge, but uh, was there anything like that,
1: really? Look, I don't think so. Australia doesn't really have much of a tradition of sitcoms in the same way. But altogether, now, I refer to it as being Who's the Boss like, and it kind of is. But the things to watch for that is that the set is almost exactly the same as the Who's the Boss set. But if, <laughs> if you want to find Ooh, an Australian version of Friends, it's actually pre Friends, if I've got my chronologies right. But there was a spin off from Hey Dad called Hampton Court. And it was said in the apartment building that Betty, the um, receptionist uh, from Hey Dad, uh, so she lived in this reception, uh, in this building, and this was like the young people that lived above her. And that's probably the closest I can get to thinking of a show that seemed very sort of friends-like, but that's only because it's young people living in a house together. Um, Outside of that, you probably need to look to maybe something which is a bit more single camera. So like Secret Life of Us definitely has its origins very much in a friends-like setting, But if you think about the origin of Friends as well, like Friends is definitely two parts Seinfeld, one part the movie Singles. Yes. Yeah, and so if you look at something like The Secret Life of Us, like you can probably see that as the lineage going through to The Secret Life of Us where Secret Life of Us is probably, you know, two part Friends and one part Singles. Like that still feels like the cultural touchstone for that program, even though it was, what, like seven years after Singles would have come out? The depth to which we can
0: mine your head for information about pointless sitcom information <laughs> never ceases to amaze me, Dan Barrett.
1: I have nothing else to offer.
0: <laughs> Let's have a look at what you'll be watching on screen, screen watchers, as the week moves forward. Uh, the major release, as I could see, is a Netflix-limited series called Dirty John, the Betty Broderick story. This is a new story set in the Dirty John universe. Now, that's has some connotations we don't want to go there but in the early hours of a Sunday morning Betty Broderick entered her ex-husband's house walked into the room where Daniel Broderick and his new wife Linda slept and emptied five rounds from her revolver into the sleeping pair Um, this stars Amanda Peet as Betty and Christian Slater as the ill-fated husband the Dirty John series has become kind of like an anthology series the first one you may remember from a couple of years back starred Eric Banner and Connie Britton was based on the very popular los angeles times podcast good cast in this one amanda pete is always worth watching and christian slater as well um it's called dirty john the betty broderick story and it's on netflix
1: now this is an interesting one to crop up on netflix because i saw this in your run in the rundown that you sent through to me and i thought dirty john kind of seems familiar i'm surprised this hasn't gone to air yet but then i realized it actually went to air like maybe about two years ago this is a pre-pandemic um series and I do oh, remember, really? watching, okay. yeah, so I remember watching the first episode or two and not being all that into it and moving on. Uh, but yeah, if you were into the first Dirty John, this is very similar territory. And as you said, really great cast. So anything with Amanda Peet, I'm absolutely there for. And also oh, for Christian sure. Slater, I'm just a huge fan of. So.
0: Didn't Amanda Peet do a... What was her sitcom from a few years back? She was in something, wasn't she?
1: Look, I was just trying to remember the name of the show. So she did a (laughs) HBO Duplass Brothers. Actually, she's done a whole bunch of sitcoms over time. Yes, she has, yeah. Uh, But she did a Duplass Brothers series called Togetherness which if you haven't seen Togetherness, it's absolutely one of these great gems that people haven't really uh, latched onto in big numbers.
0: And there's a couple of new movies uh, debuting on your streaming platform, Netflix, this week. They've got an international flavor to them. The first one is Carnival. This is the story of an influencer who takes her friends on a free trip to Bahia's vibrant carnival. Um, after a breakup she has to learn that life's not just about social media likes now this is a brazilian film we don't see a lot of brazilian movies here in australia all in portuguese it's called carnival on netflix and then you've got dancing queens the story of a 23 year old girl from a small island in the swedish archipelago with big dancing aspirations so um, in swedish um, with lots of
1: wonderful swedish
0: people dancing so that's always a bonus it's also on
1: netflix yeah, two other shows just worth keeping an eye out for as well is there's a new YA drama on Amazon called Panic, which I don't have the synopsis in front of me right now, but if you're interested in the idea of a YA drama and you've got an Amazon subscription, maybe give it a look. Uh, there's also season three of The Kaminsky Method, which is debuting on Netflix. Oh, wow. Hope it's finding an audience. I love The
0: Kaminsky Method, not just because it's of a certain vintage and watching Michael Douglas do anything is still a, a big deal for me, uh, but it's really smartly written.
1: Look, that's the interesting thing with the season as well, which is that that show was a two-hander with uh, Michael Douglas and Alan Arkin. Alan mm. Arkin, I believe, is not in his third season at all.
0: How are they uh, going to work that? I thought that was like the total sort of point of the interaction.
1: Oh, look, absolutely. But I think that this may have been filmed during the pandemic and he didn't want to participate in a production of it. Okay, so sure. this will be the third and final season. But even though Alan Arkin's not in it, Maybe look for a different type of iconic uh, partnership with Michael Douglas in that he's going to be appearing opposite Kathleen Turner in this season of the show. Oh, wow. Yeah.
0: Romancing the stone all over again. Jewel of the Nile. War of the Roses. Gee, they made some great films back in the day, didn't they? I love Romancing the Stone.
1: Oh, look, so do I. I actually rewatched her maybe like two to three weeks ago. Absolutely holds up remarkably well. A little bit flat towards the end of the movie, but my God, it's such a ride to get to that point that you're more than willing to forgive it.
0: Let's have a look at what's happening uh, on screens around Australia, the big screen. Uh, My name is Gulpalil. Now, I'm ashamed to say I haven't had a chance to see this film yet. This is the story of the uh, iconic Australian actor David Gulpalil. back in uh, 2017. He was diagnosed with lung cancer and only given six months to live. Um, in typically defiant fashion, uh, David Gulpalil said, well... I wanna make a movie all about me before I go. He still hasn't gone. Um he's kicking on with incredible strength. In my name is Gulpahill. He recounts in his own words his career, his highlights, um his ongoing commitment to his indigenous culture and spreading um uh, spreading it as, as far and as wide as he as he possibly can. This is a beautiful work. Yes, it's very sad, you see. The once vibrant young man that was David Golpalil as, as an elderly gent um, Clearly suffering through some terrible ills But also it captures his spirit And um, exactly everything about him That has made him such an extraordinarily Australian figure So it's My Name is Gulpilil It's actually in pretty wide release You should have no trouble seeing this one um, And I do recommend you get out there and, and check it out and the screening at the ACMI of Basically Black can be um, uh, checked out via Zoom. If you register to attend, you'll be sent a meeting link um, and, and you go to the acmi.net.au website to, to register and you can be part of this celebration of a, a really significant but underappreciated moment in, in Australian television history.
1: Yeah, I'm really curious about this. I've never heard of the show at all. So yeah, I want to find out more. Also uh,
0: screening uh, exclusively to the Ritz-Randwick Cinema is a movie called Final Account. This was uh, made over a decade. Uh, Young director Luke Holland, who very sadly passed away just before his film premiered, uh, documents a generation of children who were indoctrinated into into a culture of hatred and genocide through never-before-seen and very shocking interviews um, of their time growing up in Nazi Germany. This is a chilling film, um, also very sad, uh, but one that features footage like you have never seen before, and um, it's an extraordinary work. Uh, it played the Jewish Film Festival just recently, and the Ritz, good on them for giving this a, a limited run um, from this Saturday here in Sydney.
1: Simon, very quickly, something we don't talk about often enough is the Cinematheque at Gomer in Brisbane. They've got a incredible lineup of films that's been running for a few days now, so we've already missed a couple of great titles So they've thematically brought them together called All in a Day's Work. So during the week, films that you've missed already include Working Girl and Frances Ha. But if you rush to the cinema, like literally if you're listening to this in the couple of hours after it's been published, you'll be able to see Parasite playing on the big screen and that's from 6pm this evening. And they're going to be replaying that on Wednesday night from 7.30. Uh, Also on later, so straight after coming out of Parasite, you can stroll back in and see Sorry to Bother You which is a fantastic little film. Mm. I strongly recommend that one. Uh, a couple of other films. They've got Taste of Cement. They've got The Bicycle Thieves. Uh, they've got The Assistance from last year, the year before. Uh, Kihi's Delivery Service, Rosetta, The Grapes of Wrath, Mildred Pierce, and Black Girl. What an extraordinary lineup. Absolutely. And outside of that lineup, even though it probably kind of fits thematically, actually, it might be part of it. It's just kind of weirdly laid out in the EDM I was sent. On Wednesday, one that I desperately wish I was up in Brisbane to catch is a screening of The Apartment, the 1960 film by Billy Wilder. A wonderful, wonderful film that we only just watched recently on the Criterion channel here
0: at at home. And it's, uh, boy, does it hold up in in so many ways. That is a great collection of movies. Um, Rosetta is screening next friday evening at 6 p.m it's a 1999 film which is a beautiful work uh get along to it where is it
1: at the goma goma Tech
0: in brisbane queensland art gallery
1: and yeah if you're a queensland based listener of the podcast subscribe to that newsletter because quite regularly you'll just suddenly find a whole series of films you want to see that you wouldn't have otherwise thought about like it's an incredible program uh, lineup that I've got there at the cinema Some important moments this week
0: in history, May 14 to May 20. Let's have a look at what happened um, on those days in years gone by. On May 31 in 2014, now this is big news, you'll all remember this fondly. You said incredible, which
1: I think is really setting things up for an obvious truth here. (laughs)
0: Size Gangnam Style became the first video to reach 2 billion views on YouTube. Gee, they were good days when that happened. Who'll ever forget the elation society felt when that went down? Um, That was big news. What happened on June 2nd?
1: Oh, look, a show which I don't know if you've heard of it before. It's called The Wire. It debuted on June 2nd, 2002, created by David Simon and starring Idris Elba and Dominic West. A show which nobody watched on June 2nd, but when the DVD started being released about five to ten years later, people started paying a bit more attention.
0: And a little ep- and a little show called Star Trek had its final episode, uh, an episode called Turnabout Intruder. June 3, 1969, NBC said, that's it, we're out of here with this stupid little space show, and it was never spoken of again.
1: Yeah, so the fact they broadcast that in June 3rd means they were definitely burning that off.
0: This week in birthdays, May 29, 1958, beautiful Annette Bening star of Grifters and one of my favorite movies Bugsy. She was born on May 31. Uh, Clint Eastwood. Oh, that was a terrible Clint Eastwood. He was born in San Francisco in 1930.
1: Also beautiful in his own way.
0: Yes, exactly right. Um, on June 1st, 1926, Norma Jean Mortenson, a.k.a. Marilyn Monroe, was born in L.A. The beautiful Heidi Klum, June 1st, 1973. And on June 3, Anderson Cooper, TV presenter with CNN, which makes him just a little bit older than me i was born in june 1967 as well but more on that later
1: yeah are you also a vanderbilt a what a vanderbilt (laughs) from the very wealthy vanderbilt family
0: oh as mr cooper is uh no i was from the not so wealthy middle class foster family of beecroft new south wales
1: sorry to hear that
0: (laughs) yes so was i
1: Anyway, Simon, we've probably hit the end of the podcast here. Folks, thank you very much for listening to Screen Watching. I'm Dan Barrett. You can find me on the twitter.com at the Dan Barrett. Start your day with my free newsletter. It's called Always Be Watching, and you can find that at alwaysbewatching.com. It's got the big stories in TV, streaming, and film. And on Friday, I do drop the Always Be Streaming newsletter, which recounts the big shows that have launched that week and where to watch them.
0: You can read my words over at Screen Space, www.screen-space.net, and on Twitter at Simon R. Foster. Visit the Screen Watching Facebook page. There's always something going on there. I'm posting every day over there, including um, every week's podcast. And do check out my Sydney Science Fiction Film Festival, which I am the festival director of which I am. Um, Tickets are on sale, and we're announcing lots of the program in the weeks ahead, so check that out. And when does that kick off? That is November 3 to 14. uh, And we're announcing the first wave of titles on June 7. And I've seen them, you know, being the festival director. And there's some good movies in there. Okay. Well, I'd want to hope so.
1: (laughs) Now, (laughs) folks, you can follow Screen Watching via your favorite podcast app. Load it up now. Hit the follow button. And also, there's a little button on it that says share. Share it with one of your friends. It helps spread word of the show.
0: Yeah, we would appreciate that. We're putting in a lot of hard work to do this. And to our audience out there, I want to thank both of you for um, for your feedback.
1: Folks, this has been Screen Watching. We'll be back next week. We're going to be taking a look at a whole bunch of movies and TV shows, including the debut of what's guaranteed to be one of your favorite shows on Netflix this year. It's a show called Sweet Tooth. I've seen the first couple and I've got some thoughts. We'll talk about that next week and more on Screen Watching.